Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. Getting out of debt, um, just think about it. Uh, usually from that point where uh, a man proposes to his to-be bride and he spends more money than he can afford for a ring, uh, from that point forward, it is almost uh, inevitable uh, and perpetual debt. Uh, because from that point forward, not only the ring that was purchased, there is planning the wedding ceremony and all of the funds that go into that. And then the honeymoon. And then you get your first place where it would be a house or apartment and you need furniture and all the things that go there. And you're starting your career. And it, it just feels like, how in the world could we ever start our life together without going into debt? And that's if we were good when we were before we got married, when we were... In school, when we were dating and we didn't get into credit card debt and other things like that. So at this point, uh, I all but assume when we begin to talk about how a couple should manage their finances together, one of the first questions that we need to be able to address uh, is how do we get out of debt? Uh, Because in the absence of a financial plan, something begins to happen. Uh, we, We have a false sense of freedom. Uh, we have a, an expanded sense of freedom that is created um, by debt. Now, the picture that I, that I have of what that is like is uh, like a kitten playing with string. Uh, and at first it's really cute and the kitten's having a great time and it attacks the string and it rolls all up in the string. and It's just, it is having a great, great time until that moment of sheer panic when it realizes it is completely wrapped up and can't get away and then it screeches and you've got to like put your hand down and it's clawing you and you're trying to get the the string that is that is kind of that moment when we realize we are in too much debt like the kitten we've been playing we've had the freedom of finances that we don't really have and then we hit that moment where we realize we are bound up and it is panic Um, And a big part of what we're going to talk about in chapter 4 is how do we get out of that experience. In order to get us started with that, uh, let's take a look at C.S. Lewis. Uh, He says, one of the dangers of having a lot of money is that you may be quite satisfied with the kinds of happiness money can give and so fail to realize your need for God. If everything seems to come simply by signing a check, uh, or in our day and age, Uh, swiping a card, you may forget that you are at every moment dependent on God. And what often happens in our culture is we become quite content uh, with the kind of happiness that debt can provide. And here is one of the things that's just one of those plumb line kind of foundational statements uh, that I want us to grapple with and after we grapple with to accept it as something that will guide us through this material. We must learn to fear and hate debt 
more than we like and trust stuff. Okay? We have to learn to fear and hate debt more than we love and trust stuff. Or our ability to execute a budget will always feel like something is being taken from us. It will always feel like a bad thing. It will feel unpleasant. It will feel like we're being punished. And, and we don't want that. Now, I think for most of us, we, we're ashamed of debt. We don't really like to talk about it. We don't want it to be known in public that we have debt. Uh, we're ashamed of debt, uh, but we don't hate it. In the back of our mind, we keep thinking that debt really is going to give us what we want. It really is going to fulfill the promise that it gives us. And in that sense, if you'll let me use this metaphor, and I don't use it simply to be uncouth. I use it because I think it is very instructional for us. Uh, debt is a lot like pornography. Uh, debt is something that creates this artificial reality where we get without having to give. And the more we get without having to give, the more this sense of emotional bondage gets created. To where with time, it begins to feel harder to live in real life and real relationships than it is just to continue doing what we're doing. And we begin to think, can people really live without debt? I mean, do people actually do that? And it created this artificial reality where we get without giving. It creates bondage and we think real life is just too hard without it. And, and so we, we begin to say, where do we go next? And uh, in this case, maybe a, a, uh, a different quote, uh, one from a comedian, George Carlin. Uh, he says, trying to be happy by accumulating possessions is like trying to satisfy hunger by taping sandwiches all over your body. Uh, it just doesn't work. And here is a description of debt. Debt is robbing from tomorrow in order to artificially inflate today. So that my expectations increase. Again, my expectations increase. I keep thinking that whatever freedom that I have right now, that should only steadily increase over time. And so as I rob from tomorrow to artificially inflate today, my expectations increase as my opportunities decrease. And when I get to tomorrow, I have less and less opportunity because I've already spent the resources that were meant to be there for tomorrow, but I'm going into it with inflated expectations because of the debt spending I did yesterday. And so what is the first part of getting out of debt? It's having a budget and making cuts. Now, there are some people who try to eliminate debt without having a budget. My comparison to that would be a fad diet. If you're on a fad diet, you may lose weight initially, but you're not going to keep it off because you're not creating something that is a sustainable lifestyle. You just want to be in the diet long enough to wear the dress, to be in the jeans, to whatever the occasion is, and then you go back and you go, ah, I've been good long enough, now I can reward myself. Um, you haven't created a lifestyle. And so having a budget, it's it part of creating a lifestyle. Um, it, we don't want to just break even. 
And so we think back to the budget. And this is part of the reason why we laid out our budget in those four tiers that we laid them out in. Uh, where we had fixed necessity, variable necessity, fixed luxury, variable luxury. So that when it came time to make cuts, we could cut from the bottom to the top. And these are the areas that we could cut with the least lifestyle changes. These are the cuts that we would need to make that would have the largest lifestyle changes. And we can tell, based upon how much debt we have to retire, what intensity of cut, what level of lifestyle change we're going to have to make for a period of time in order to get out of debt. Now, as we take this a bit further, uh, James Lindsay Basford, he says, the man who never has money enough to pay his debts has too much of something else. Now, when we hear that, if you're somebody who's in a crisis debt situation, one of the things that can, can happen is people begin to feel guilty and they begin to make cuts in ways that are unwise. And so at this point, when he says they have too much of something else, I want to make sure we protect some areas that we don't cut. Uh, and, and these are what I call the first things first. These are the things that we protect, that we don't cut. Uh, the first of those is our home, either our rent or our mortgage. Uh, it, when someone's home is in jeopardy, the level of fear, the level of unsettledness, the level that nothing is predictable that grips them is very intense. Now, it is easy for many people who are in a financial bind that they begin to go, wait a second, I've got my rent or my mortgage payment and that's really big and I've got all of these other debts and I've only got this much money. I can either pay this one or I can pay all of these. It'd be better to pay all of these, right? No. Uh, we want to have uh, a place to live that is secure, that we're not going to get evicted or we're not going to get foreclosed on. That is the kind of stability that allows us to make other wise decisions. Uh, food. Uh, we need to have basic nutrition. For I'm not talking about going out to eat. If we, are, if we are retiring debt and it is a bad enough situation that we're looking at these kinds of measures, we should not be going out to eat. We can fix sandwiches. But if we, uh, if we are at a spot where we're going, look, I'll just start, I'll skip a few meals. Getting out of debt is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And when we begin to deplete ourselves physically, the emotional and cognitive stability that we will need to execute this plan over an extended period of time, it, it will deteriorate to the point that we won't be able to do that. Now, a third area that, that makes sense off of that uh, is essential medical care. Again, if you have a chronic condition or if you are sick, uh, being able to care for yourself, getting the medication, the treatment that you need, because again, this is something that is going to take time. And when we weaken ourselves physically thinking we're going to save money in that way, uh, it is never a good investment. It always winds up costing us more in the long run. Power and water. When you're in a dark place and you don't have water, dark place meaning literally, not metaphorically or emotionally there, the level of unsettledness that you feel, again, it begins to jar you in your ability to think clearly. And then finally, transportation. It, 
Now again, if you've got a really nice car that's costing you four or $500 a month on the car payment, I agree with Dave Ramsey, by all means, sell the car. Get something that doesn't have payments that can serve you and your family well and, and you know, then save money later and buy you a nice car again. But, but if you're at a spot where basic upkeep on your vehicle, getting oil changes and things of that nature, those are things that we should not omit in order to save money because the long-term cost of that is going to be greater if we do. Now you ask me, why, what, what good does it do to know this? Uh, I'll give you two things. Uh, that if you or somebody in your small group or friend is in this kind of situation, this kind of thing will do two things for you. One, it will give you confidence that you are making wise decisions. Because if you're in this kind of debt where these decisions are being made, one of the feelings that is going to overwhelm you is just a sense that we can't, I can't do anything right. Nothing I do is working. Every time I make a decision, it just goes wrong. I can't do And you start changing courses all the time. And every time you change, the priorities get shuffled and the mess gets bigger. And if you have a sense that these are the first things first, these are the things that we care for initially, you can go, okay, even if it's hard and it's going to take me a period of time to execute the plan that we're going to lay out, what I'm doing is wise. I can be settled in that. The second thing that it allows you to do is it will allow you to speak with clear clarity and confidence when you talk to creditors. Again, we're going to come back to that in just a moment with the debt snowball when we get there. But when you say, I know my first things first, they're going to yell and bark at me, they're going to threaten all kinds of things, and I'm going to start thinking I should pull from this in order to get them to quit yelling at me. No. First things first, it gives you the confidence to say, I should not forego my rent or mortgage in order to pay off a credit card. Now, that next thing that you do, as soon as you get caught up, doesn't mean you're debt-free, just means you're not late on a payment. The next thing that I want you to do is to create an emergency fund. If you're not late on any of your bills right now and you don't have an emergency fund, by Tuesday, if at all possible, I want you to try to create an emergency fund. Uh, if not by Tuesday, then as quickly as you can. That's all I mean by that. Is An emergency fund is $1,000 in a savings account outside of your checking account that is just there to serve as a buffer between you and life. Now, uh, I'll talk about this in light of budgets for just a moment. It, when it comes to budgets, a lot of times couples will say, we've tried to make a budget so many times and it just won't work for us. And I think outside of the structural elements that we talked about in chapters 1, 2, and 3, one of the things that happens that makes it hard for a couple to execute a budget uh, is they create uh, what is called a tight coupling system. Now you say, wait a second, I'm not like an accountant person. I, I don't know what a tight, tight coupling system is. When, when you hear tight coupling, think gears on a watch. You, all of the gears in the watch are made to fit together just perfectly so that they can all turn. And if any one of those gears gets broken or taken out, then the whole watch stops working. That's a tight coupling system. Most often when couples create a budget, especially when things are tight and they're trying to get out of debt, they create a tight coupling system. One light item on their budget gets broken and the whole thing falls apart. 
And again, that's why we created the structure that we did so that we know where to cut from and where it's easiest to do that from the bottom. That's also why we create an emergency fund. So that we don't get in a system where one light item goes a wire and it derails our entire system and we're going back into debt going, see, your budget doesn't work for us. Now we're going to come back and after emergency fund, there's another piece that we're going to put into place in order to be a little bit safer so that we're not dipping into the emergency fund for all, that, uh, for all of that. Um, but for the moment, uh, we get caught up on our bills. We don't go into first thing first. We create an emergency fund. And now we're getting ready to look at the debt snowball. But before we do that, let's look at this quote from David Platt. He says, Yet in the American dream, where self reigns as king or queen, uh, we have a dangerous tendency to misunderstand, minimize, and even manipulate the gospel in order to accommodate our assumptions and our desires. And one of the foremost assumptions and desires that we have in our culture uh, is that debt is normal and that debt is good. Uh, I would go so far... Uh, well, it's not me this time. This is Proverbs 22, 7. Uh, the debtor is slave to the lender. Debt is a form of voluntary slavery. Think about what we said earlier. Debt is taking from tomorrow to artificially inflate today so that when we get to tomorrow, we have fewer and fewer choices. What is freedom? Freedom is the ability to make the choices that would best serve you and those that you love. When I take from tomorrow in such a way that I no longer have those choices, when I eliminate choices, I am creating bondage. I am creating slavery. That's what I do when I eliminate choices. And so when we, when we attack death, this is a form of liberation. This is a form of emancipation. This is us saying, I will not live without the basic choices that I need to serve me and my family well. And I think the best way to approach that uh, is a debt snowball. Uh, that's language that I take uh, from Dave Ramsey. Now, if you'll notice in your notebook, there's a chart that looks like this. It has several columns. Um, and what I would advise that you do is you pull some of that work that you did at the end of chapter 2 and you get a list of your debts. And you list them from smallest total debt to largest total debt. So whatever the total payment is, whatever it is, total amount that I owe, from smallest to largest. Now, I know what you're thinking. Okay, If you go, that's how we're going to tackle it. If you're like me, you go, wait a second, there is a more efficient way to do this. We should not arrange it from smallest to largest. We should arrange it from largest interest rate to smallest interest rate. And I will say, in theory, I agree with you. I think by the time that you finish your debt snowball, if you do it your way, you will probably have saved about $27. Okay? I am not giving you a, an approach that is motivated primarily by maximal financial savings. I'm giving you one based upon motivation theory. My goal is not to get you there fastest. My goal is to get you there. And I think if you maintain motivation and you see the progress as you go along, the will to finish will be greater than the $27 that you save by whatever interest that is there. And so here's how the debt snowball works. 
let's say that first debt is a credit card that's got like $200 on it, and it's a $25 a month payment. And you're working your budget, and you pay all of these minimum monthly payments, so you put $25 and everything else that goes there, and at the end of all of that, you got $100 left over at the month. You take that $100 with the $25 that you put on it, and you pay off $125 of that $200. And so after the first month, you got $75 left right there. Okay, we come back next month, we got $25, and it just wasn't as good of a month. Okay, the kids had to go to the doctor. We only got $50 this time. So we take this $50, we put with that 20 Ah, we knock that debt out. Now, does that $25 go back into our budget? Say no. No. That $25 every month is going to go on top of this next debt. Okay, so I'm always, every month, even if at the end of the month I haven't been good at all and all I've been able to do is make ends meet, then I've got that additional $25 to put on top of the next one. And then when we knock that one out, we take this payment and that payment and we knock out the next one and you say, how long do I do that? My advice to you is until you're debt free except for your home. Uh, Go ahead and knock it out through the car, through the student loan, Be aggressive, be intense in the way you go about this until you are debt-free except for your home. Now, going back to where we were just a moment ago, what if I'm in a spot where where I can't make that minimal monthly payment on everything? What if, you know, it's not just one kid going to the doctor, it's three kids going to the doctor and then they had some medicine that they had to get and and we come and, and let's say this month, my minimal monthly payments with where I'm at. I'm working hard, Brad. I tell you, I am. But I got $500 worth of my minimal monthly payments, and there was only $350 left. What do I do then? Well, do I pay the ones that add up to $350? Not my recommendation. Uh, $350 is 70% of $500. So my recommendation is that every bill you pay 70% of that bill. You put a letter in there to the creditor saying, I'm in a tight spot, I am working a plan to get out of debt. This month, I had 70% of the minimal monthly payments. I am looking for potential jobs and I'm doing all of that kind of stuff. Uh, Here's my plan uh, to be able to pay you in full. And if you pay something on each one of those while you're working the rest of what we're talking about to get ahead, I think that will that will keep them off of you for a period of time that will buy you the time that you need to execute the things that we're talking about. Now, what I want you to see, we're talking about death, this is kind of heavy, this is discouraging. I want us to put a little happy face on this. I want us to have some encouragement here. What is going on as you're paying off these debts? When you go through that, you are putting your budget back in balance. You are creating discretionary spending again. So that when we talk about those four categories of fixed necessity, variable necessity, fixed luxury, variable luxury, and we put those percentages of what each one would be, when you get to the end of this, you have created a lifestyle where you are content in the necessity. And you can now look at this money that you were putting towards debt and say, how can we use this money to best love God, love our family, love the world? How how can we put our budget in order? Now, uh, what I want to do as we think about putting that budget in order, I want to give you two things that are what I call pro-marriage, anti-debt lifestyles. 
I think these things are huge. I think these things, if you will embrace them, will radically impact your marriage and family. I also think they are relatively easy. I think when you hear them, you're going to be disappointed. Um, now, uh, as we go into the first one, I'll read a quote from John Piper. He says, we can be content with simplicity because the deepest, most satisfying delights God gives us through creation are free gifts from nature and from loving relationships with people. After your basic needs are met, accumulated money begins to diminish your capacity for these pleasures rather than increase them. Buying things contributes absolutely nothing to the heart's capacity for joy. Uh, and as a, as a lifestyle, I think that's part of what we just have to grasp, that, that contentment and joy isn't found in the things that we buy. Uh, and as I get ready to go into this, I just I feel the need to uh, to have a bit of self disclosure here that uh, that by and large my wife and I are probably not normal people uh, in this arena. Uh, we we enjoy beating the budget more than most people do, and so when it comes to getting my wife a present, if I can get that present for free. She is very enamored with that. She does not consider me cheap. She, that, you know, if I can get her and go, I got that for free. She gives me a bigger hug than if I paid a whole lot for it. And so this is just kind of a, a for instance in our household. This was not this Valentine, but, but Valentine last year. Uh, you know, I, knowing this about my wife, I was going to try to love her uh, just the way that she was. And so I get on restaurants.com and I find like we can get a, a gift certificate for $20 that would be like a nice $50 meal at a restaurant. I'm looking through. I find a place that, uh, you know, they have some nice kind of Italian dishes that, that would be wonderful. And I look at some pictures. It, uh, it's, you know, it looks very classy to me. I, I look at the name of the restaurant. It's named after like an author of an old English book. My wife taught history. I'm like, this is perfect. Uh, this is where we're going to go. And, um, and, and so we, we get there, uh, and, and you, may, you may or may not know the place, it's called Oliver Twist, um, and Twist was not exactly after the English author, uh, it was a Bella dancing club, and so uh, there I am on Valentine's Day with my wife, we walk in at a Bella dancing club, and there is one thing that my wife hates more than going to a Bella dancing club on Valentine's Day. It is wasting a coupon for which we paid money. So we go in. I hold her hand. I look in her eyes. We enjoy our meal. I tell her how wonderful she is, how much, how forgiving and long-suffering and amazing, incredible woman that she is. Um, and we can look back on that and we can now smile. It's been about 18 months. Um, but um, it... What I would say off of all of that, if you were going to say, what is one piece that when it comes to making a budget work within your family? Enjoy one another. Our deepest joy should not be in the things that we do or the things that we buy, but in one another. Uh, it, in a, in a gospel-centered marriage, we should become increasingly convinced 
that the best things in life really are free. Uh, Because that is usually an indication that we've begun to value stuff and activity more than relationship. Uh, And I think one of the places where this just pops most in our culture is that if you take the biggest financial investment that most every one of us have, it's where we try to spend the least amount of our time. It's our home. We spend all of our time trying to be out doing stuff with other people, entertaining ourselves. Our biggest financial investment is our home. And if we learn to enjoy the things at home, it will, if you think about it for just a moment, it will make whatever cuts that we need to make while we're getting out of debt seem like that not that big a deal. Because if my basics are covered and we enjoy one another, uh, and yes, it's a quiet evening when we're together and we're playing games or watching televisions or going for a walk, uh, and that's what we can afford to do. Uh, and there's been a long seasons of times in our marriage when date night for us involved uh, one of us fixing dinner and us going for a walk in a neighborhood because that's, that's what we could afford to do in that season of life. And it was okay because we enjoyed one another and we didn't feel like we were being cheated. And so here's a quote to lead us into the second piece uh, that I think just sets us up for this kind of mindset. It comes from a uh, missionary, Ralph Winters, in a book about missions. Uh, He says, labor-saving machines have turned out to be body-killing devices. Our affluence has allowed both mobility and isolation of the nuclear family. And as a result, our divorce courts, our prisons, and our mental institutions are flooded. In saving ourselves, we have nearly lost ourselves. And if you think about his statement, we are true. It is true. We we have more items of convenience than any other generation in history. And our relationships are more broken, our emotions are more frazzled, and our schedules are more stuffed, but we've got more convenience than anybody. And so I want to call us back to something very old-fashioned. Dinner. Sitting together with your family at dinner. Uh, And in your notebook, there's the, what I call the glorious family meal calendar. Uh, A version of this, my wife asked me to make uh, as a blank document uh, that we could put on our refrigerator in about the third month of our marriage. And if you look above the desk where my wife has her computer, there is a purple notebook, and you can flip back and see every meal that we have eaten in 14 years of marriage. Yes, we are that compulsive. Um, Yet... But I want to try to sell you on this. And the first place that I would start is having a family meal calendar promotes having a family meal time. You give value and honor to what you plan. If you plan it, you honor it. If you plan it, you value it. And I want to be in a family where there is a reason for us not to have family dinner instead of there having to be a reason for us to have family dinner. Uh, When the kids ask, are we going to sit down to a meal, I want their expectation to be yes, unless there is something significant for there to be no. I think that is an incredibly precious family value. Now let's look at some of the other advantages 
food tends to be one of the biggest line items in a budget. Outside of like rent or mortgage, proportionately, especially if you got kids, it begins to be a bigger and bigger part of the budget. When you have a family meal calendar, you don't walk through the grocery going, well, we might eat this and we might eat that and, well, maybe we'll eat this. Uh, you go through, it makes the whole process more efficient. Uh, not just more cost efficient, more time efficient. Because you look at this, what do we need? Okay, there we go. I go to the grocery. I know I'm only buying what we need. Other food doesn't perish nearly as much. And so time and money is saved. Cooking becomes less stressful. You come home at the end of a long day. And you're trying to figure out what are we going to fix? What are we going to cook? If you don't have something like this, you're going to fall back on the old three. Uh, whatever those three things are in your family, that's just, it's a pizza, it's chicken strips, it's, you know, whatever it is, macaroni and cheese, it, that's what we're going to do every time. Because if i got to think about it and I am brain dead at the end of the day, I am falling back on what I know. If I have a meal calendar and I don't have to think about it, and I know everything that I need is in the pantry because I used that when I went to the grocery, it takes a whole lot of stress out of that. It, you can plan your leftovers. I know when we're going to have a busy week, because we usually have chicken rotel on Monday. Uh, because chicken rotel is something that comes in a big pot. Uh, a lot of it gets made, and you can eat that for a couple of weeks after on some key days. And so when I see chicken rotel, I'm going, it's going to be a busy couple of weeks. Um, yeah, I just need to strap up and let's go. Um, it, um, but again, it allows us to be strategic when we look at it. Uh, it allows you to be intentional about when you eat out. Uh, eating out is a wonderful blessing, um, but it shouldn't be a lifestyle. Uh, it's not good for your budget, and it's not good for your family. And so if we're going to do that, let's be strategic about it. Um, now with that, uh, you'll notice that uh, this wasn't on the original draft of this that we used, but you'll notice I put some things down the side uh, of that meal calendar. And it's just some key things that I would want you to be reminded of uh, as you make this. And one of those is date night. When we do our family meal calendar, one of the things that we look at is when are we going to have a date? And if there's not a date on the calendar, something else needs to move. Uh, because if, if we're going to do this, we're going to have to plan it. If we're going to plan it, we're going to have to look at a, a block of time that allows us to do that. And so I just put it there on the sidebar so that when you're doing this, you think, ah, we need to put a date on here. Um, you'll eat healthier. Uh, there is always at least one healthy thing, as we call it, on that night of the, of the dinner. Uh, and again, our kids know what's the healthy thing tonight, and they ask that kind of question. But when you introduce more healthy foods into your diet, uh, your medical bills and your days of missing work are going to decrease. Not only are you going to feel better and be more productive and probably uh, do better at work and in, uh, gain raises, but the amount of time that you miss and you're out, I think you will be very surprised if you do this over a course of months instead of weeks, the kind of impact that it begins to have. You'll eat a greater variety of foods. Again, if you plan it out over a month, you're going to look at it and go, I don't want to have chicken strips three nights in a row. But if you're just coming home trying to figure it out, good chance we're having chicken strips and macaroni and cheese three nights in a row. You write this out, all of a sudden there is greater variety. One of the things that, I, in my opinion, that has caused us to neglect the home is we've allowed it to become a place of mundane repetition. 
with a little bit of intentionality, we can increase the amount of variety and interest in what we're doing uh, at home. Here's an incredible benefit that, that I, I think it was some time into us using this instrument before I caught on to what was actually helping. This is a time before every month begins when we look at the month as a whole. Instead of just living to survive the day and get through the week, there is a point where we look at our month as a whole. And we say, how many nights in a row are we out? Okay, this week is going to be stressful, and that night we're at home. We really need to protect it. Again, do we have a date night? Let us look at the month as a whole. And looking in larger blocks of time is what allows us to be intentional and the monthly meal calendar was something that has served our family very well in that regard. Opportunity for community. Meals are a great time to invite people over. You know, do you have a list of people? These are folks that we want to get to know better. Somebody from our small group, somebody that we met at church, a neighbor that we're wanting to invite in church. Okay, what night would it be and when do we kind of have something that, okay, on that night we would want to create something, we want to make something that we could serve family style, it allows us to be intentional with that. Now, I want to guess at what your objection to this would be. And that would be, who has time to do this? Uh, who has time to sit down and make out a meal calendar like this? I'll make a bet with you. If you'll do it the first month, it will be incredibly easy to do every month after that. It will require sacrifice for one month. But after that, you basically just play Yahtzee. Uh, you, you take what you did before, you roll it out on a new month, you move them around. If you want to add another recipe that you found in the newspaper or something like that, you can add that in. You know, I'll tell, I like to play in the kitchen, I like to cook, so there'll be just a night where Sally put Brad cooks and, and that's on there. It, but once you do it that first month, you're not going to make 62 different dishes you're probably going to make about 12 that you rotate through. And once you get them on there and figure out where they fit best with what's going on in that month, it becomes really easy to pull this off. Here's what, we keep this on our refrigerator. Here's what happens almost every time somebody comes over to our house. Two things. One, they make fun of us. Uh, they look at it and they go, really, you guys, uh, we, you, you are those people. You would be the ones to do this. And then they ask us for a copy before they go home. Um, the most awkward version of that, we were getting ready to go, and the, and the wife of the family that had come over to our house uh, looked at Sally and I, and she said, you know, before tonight, I thought do not covet thy neighbor's wife was just for men. Uh, but no, not after this. Uh, and yes, my wife is that amazing. Um, but uh, again, just let me encourage you. Uh, I think in terms of prioritizing family meal time, something that is incredibly beneficial for your budget, for communication, this is highly valuable, something I would very much recommend. Uh, in terms of debt, uh, one final quote from John Piper. He says, there are three levels of how to live with things. You can steal to get, you can work to get, or you can work in order to give. One of the few times I'm going to disagree with John Piper. Uh, I'm going to say there is a fourth. Uh, you can work to pay back what you've already spent. Uh, and that, hopefully at this point, is where you go, 
I don't want to live that way anymore. I see it. That is bondage. That is slavery. I don't want that. And so I, I'm not going to go so far as to say that all debt is sin. But I do want to draw a parallel between debt and sin to kind of conclude what we do with this section. We, sin loses its appeal when we see that it can never deliver on what it promises. Sin always promises a lot up front and can never deliver. That's why we never look back on sin and go, that was a great idea. Because on this side, it just looks dumb. But when, when we think it can deliver, that's when it is appealing. What I hope that we've done with debt is that same kind of transformation that happens with sin. I hope we've shown that as we artificially inflate today by robbing from tomorrow and limiting our choices, it's just not going to work. It's a bad deal. And I don't want to make it anymore. 